0: The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read here? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you more, whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all again. Um, Just to follow up on something Kara said, as I try to get this unlocked, Uh, the picnics. I want to say thank you for everybody that was able to show up for the picnics. this last weekend and then last month. I personally thought those were a ton of fun and I was very, very pleased with how many people were there and were participating. It was just really cool to be with people in a social setting uh, as we share this spiritual community together. I thought those were really neat. If you haven't had a chance yet, there's another one coming up first weekend in August as Kara mentioned. Um, And there's some particular discussion going on about maybe one in September, maybe, maybe, we'll see. We'll see. But those are pretty cool. I, I enjoy being out there for those. So if you haven't had a chance yet, I strongly encourage you to join us um, next time we have the church picnic. But it's good to be back in the, in the room here. It's good to be back and worshiping God and glorifying God together. And so I'm always grateful to have that opportunity. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is Dan Cook, and I'm the pastoral intern here for another three weeks? Three weeks here? And then I'm really done with school. (laughs) Now I really have to figure out what's going on with my life. No, I'm kidding. Um, It's always a blessing, though, to be up here and to be able to share God's word with you. So thank you for being here today, and thank you for the folks who are joining us online as well. This passage here today, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is one of those that we talk about often at Genesis being a passage that we know so well, we actually kind of don't know it at all. And I want to dig into that a little bit today, because this term, Good Samaritan, has been culturized, has been secularized, has been pulled out of its context, and in most people's minds, and understandably so, it's taken on this connotation of a do-gooder, of somebody who does a random act of kindness, a random good deed, something that maybe they didn't have to do, but they go out of their way a little bit and do it, and that's, they get stamped with that label Good Samaritan. And I don't mean to discredit that at all, that's a good thing, those are good actions, that's a good way to approach it, but that's not really what Jesus was digging at. In this story. And so to understand that parable for all it is worth, you really that's why there's these two sections to it. Right? You'll see in, in your liturgy there, there's the kind of the opening three verses, and then we dig a little bit deeper. But if you don't understand that first section and the context that it provides, you miss what Jesus is really driving at in that second section. So we're gonna go through that today. We're gonna kinda take those two sections apart. We're gonna talk a little bit about Jewish theology, and we're gonna talk a little bit about Jewish history, and we're gonna talk a whole lot about God's extravagant love and how we're called to spread that love amongst each other, okay? That's our path here today. So let's start with that first section, verses 25 to 28. Uh, this is a story, this portion of the story, the parable itself doesn't appear necessarily in all synoptic gospels, but this portion of the story does, this first three verses, some version of this is in Matthew, Mark, And Luke, and there's a little bit of detailed differences amongst the three. I'm not going to get sidetracked in those, but the heart of the thing, the core of the thing, especially that answer that this lawyer gives is the same in all three synoptic gospels. So that tells us that it's awfully, awfully important. So what's going on here? We have a lawyer who's testing Jesus, right? Luke Luke has positioned this religious figure as somebody who's offering Jesus a test to see if he really knows his stuff. And ask them this question, what must I do to inherit internal life? In the Mark and Matthew version, you have some sort of religious figure asking Jesus, what is the first or what is the most important commandment? There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Which one of those is the most important? And what they're really all three driving at is which one of those sums up the entirety of the law? Which is the one that if we follow that one, everything else sort of flows from that, and we're going to find ourselves on that path to eternal life. That's what all three of these situations are really kind of driving at. And then again, in the Matthew-Mark version, you have Jesus giving the answer. In the Luke version, you have Jesus doing a very rabbi-like thing, answering a question with a question. And he asks the lawyer, "Well, what do you think? What do you think it is?" And the lawyer, who's all about giving the right answers, comes back with a twofold answer. And I want to break that answer apart a little bit and dig into that. The first part of it that he says there in verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That first part, that chunk right there that I just read is a quote from Deuteronomy, specifically chapter six, verses four and five. In chapter six of Deuteronomy, we find a prayer called the Shema. Some of you may have heard of that. This is probably the most formational prayer there is in Judaism. If you think of the Apostles' Creed, as perhaps the best summation of Christianity, the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, is the summative prayer of Judaism. It's a prayer that Orthodox Jews still to this day pray first thing in the morning and last thing at night before they go to bed. It is the center. And it is the idea of this personal relationship with God. It's the idea that God loves you individually, loves you as a community, and that you are to reflect that love back to God. It's a very vertical dimension of God's love, okay? So that's the first part. The second part there that comes after that semicolon in verse 27 says, and your neighbor as yourself, which is the golden rule, right? But that golden rule is actually a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. And it appears in a section in Leviticus that is all about justice. There's a Christian writer by the name of Theodore Wardlaw, and he says that loving your neighbor as yourself means not exploiting the less powerful or the stranger, it means feeding those who are hungry, protecting those who are vulnerable, acting for those who are not privileged. It's a very active thing. It's not about how you feel. It's about how you behave towards other people. And Jesus actually affirms this in the very next verse. Verse 28 is a sneaky verse because it sounds very rote, right? Jesus is like, yep, you got the right answer. Do that and you're going to be just fine. But it's those middle two words, do that, that I want to stop on for a second. Because again, love, when we talk about God's love, when we talk about sharing God's love with each other, love can be positioned as a feeling, as an emotion, and that's not wrong. But when we're talking about God's love and sharing that with one another, it's that and how we actually behave towards one another, how we actually interact with one another. It's one thing to say, I love this person and have that be the end of it. But if we're not living that out, if our posture towards that person, if our behavior towards that person doesn't reflect that love, then our feelings maybe aren't as meaningful as we'd like to think that they are. So when Jesus says, do that, that's an important thing. It's not just about how you feel, it's about what you actually do with that love that God has poured into you and that you are designed to pour out to other people. And that's important. Because when you, when you take this picture as a, as a whole, you have the Shema, you have God pouring his love into us and us reflecting God's love back to God through how we, how we treat other people. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. And again, in some of the other versions of this story, you hear Jesus asked for a singular commandment and he ends up giving two. Part of that, I like to think, is that Jesus likes to poke the bear and defy expectations. <laughs> But the bigger part of it is those two things are connected in Jesus' mind. You don't get to have one without the other. If you think that your relationship with God is really good, but you're not spreading God's love out to other people and how you behave and how you position yourself, it's time to reevaluate. If you think, I'm treating my neighbors really, really well, I don't need to bother with this God thing, you're lacking something. They're, They're connected. They're inseparable. And that's what this whole first three verses is driving at God's love, having that in mind, how we receive it, how we spread it, and how those two things are inextricably linked. Now, with that in mind, we turn to the actual parable. And the parable itself actually hinges on the question in verse 29, where you have this lawyer asking, well, who is my neighbor? Now, remember, we had just, he had just, the lawyer had just said, you know, the Shema, love your Lord, the Lord your God, and your neighbor as yourself. So he was the one that brought up the neighbor. And Jesus says, yep, go ahead and do this. And you're going to be just fine. Well, now he wants further clarification, right? And it says there, I love this word, it says he's seeking to vindicate himself. In some translations, you'll have seeking to justify himself. What this guy is doing, he just got affirmation, right? Yes, I I just gave the right answer. Jesus says I gave the right answer. That's cool, right? Now he's seeking further affirmation. Now he's seeking further vindication. Because what he wants is for Jesus to tell him that the way that he's living right now is perfectly fine and you've got it right and you're doing the right things and it's all good. So he asks, who is my neighbor? The problem is that who is my neighbor isn't really the question that he's asking. We just talked about stepping into this flow of God's love, receiving God's love, reflecting God's love and sharing God's love with each other. What he's really asking is where exactly do I have to direct this flow that you're asking me to step into? Or more specifically, he's asking, who do I not have to direct this flow towards? That's the question he's really driving at. Who do I not have to love? Because I really don't want to love everybody. So who do I get to pick and choose? How How does that work? And it's to that question that Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that... In the Gospels, Jesus asks us to love our enemies. It's the most difficult thing that we are ever asked to do as Christians. Because when Jesus is talking about enemies, remember, he's not talking about that person at the office that really just gets under your skin and annoys the heck out of you and you try to avoid as much as possible. That's not who he's talking about. In Jesus's context, when he says enemies, he means the Romans. He means the powerful, he means the system, he means those who oppress, he means those who persecute. That's the people we are... commanded to love. And that's really, really difficult to do. And you see an echo of that ask here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So he provides three examples in this parable of potential neighbors, right? There's the priest, there's the Levite, and there's the Samaritan. Now the priest and the Levite, we can sort of sum up together, right? Remember, priests came from the Levitical class. The Levites were the tribe that was descended from Aaron all the priests came from that class, all the religious scholars. If you were somebody high up in the religious hierarchy, you were very likely to be a Levite. So the priest and the Levite are walking by and they see this guy in the ditch who's been beaten up, who's been robbed, who's clearly in trouble, and they keep on going. This sometimes gets positioned as a critique of Judaism because there was a rule that said that priests could not be in the presence of a dead body or could not be in the presence of a body that was bleeding. That's a, a rule. Where people stop short when they're trying to teach it that way, though, is there's also an exception to that rule that allows priests to help people who are in dire need in that moment. That your cleanliness comes secondary to helping people who are in distress. And when you add to it the fact, remember early in the story, Jesus says that they're coming from Jerusalem heading down to Jericho. Well, a priest's cleanliness was most important as they were headed to Jerusalem to do their priestly duties. So now they're coming from Jerusalem towards Jericho. Cleanliness isn't, isn't as high on the list, and there's the exception anyway. What this is critiquing is not Judaism. What this is critiquing is the idea that these people are walking by somebody who's clearly in distress and needs help desperately, and they just choose not to and choose to keep going. And my guess is we can all expect that we can all remember some point in our life where there was somebody that we could have helped, and i am got I'm a thing, I'm, I just, you know, somebody else will take care of. You know, those moments come up, and they come up all too frequently. That's the critique here. When you're in a position and somebody desperately needs help and you have a chance to help them, it is your responsibility to help them. That's what Jesus is driving at in critiquing the priest and the Levite, not Judaism as a whole. And then we get to the Samaritan. Now, to understand the radical nature of this teaching, I do have to give you a little bit of history when it comes to the Samaritan. And I'll try and keep this short because I know not everybody's a history nerd like me, although I really wish you all were. So we have to go all the way back to the reign of King Solomon. David's son Solomon was king after him. And Solomon's son Rehoboam was king after Solomon. And towards the end of Solomon's reign and the beginning of Rehoboam's reign, we have a situation where, remember, Jerusalem's in the southern portion of Israel in the area of the tribe of Judah. And so Solomon and Rehoboam are treating Judah one way, and they're treating the rest of the tribes in the north a different way. And the tribes in the north start to get upset about this. And suddenly we have a political rift. And that political rift leads to a split into two countries. And we have a southern kingdom of Judah, and we have a northern kingdom that's usually referred to as Israel or Ephraim in the Bible. Fortunately, after 3,000 years, we don't let political ideas split us up anymore, and we're totally fine, and it's the thing to understand is while you have that southern kingdom of Judah with the capital of Jerusalem the northern kingdom their capital was a town called Samaria and so over the course of years and years if you read through the book of 1 and Second Kings first of all congratulations for getting through those books it's a slog if you read through those books you'll see descriptions of the northern kings and you'll see descriptions of the southern kings and what you'll notice is that every single northern king is counted as a bad king now you may think there's some bias involved there but the trick is most of the southern kings are treated as bad kings as well there's a few of them that are right with god but most of the southern kings are bad guys all of the northern kings are because you have these northern kings who are detached from the southern kingdom who are detached from the center of worship in the temple and who decide to build their own temples and their own idols and they start trading and mixing with other nations around them which are things specifically that Yahweh said don't do that and so over the course of almost a thousand years you have that mixing going on you have that not only uh, cultural mixing but spiritual mixing going on and so you have these folks in the south who count themselves as the quote unquote real Jews thinking that these northern folks are heathens they've disobeyed the commands of God. They're not centered on worship in Jerusalem. They're not focused on the Davidic line anymore. And over time, that hatred just builds and builds and builds. So that by the time you get to Jesus, those folks are loathed. They're the lowest of the low because they had the opportunity to follow God and they chose not to. They're hated by folks in the South. So when Jesus pulls out the Samaritan in this story as the hero of the story, it's something that would have gobsmacked this lawyer. I call it a frying pan moment. It's as though he reached out and smacked the guy upside the head with a frying pan. Anybody who listened to it would have been absolutely floored. Wait, he said, "What? who's the, the good guys? The Samaritan? That can't possibly be what he said. I heard that wrong, right? It's that kind of shock to the system that Jesus is trying to give. And it's that kind of shock to the system that we lack today because we see that good Samaritan term applied to all sorts of good things, right? That's the people who do good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you understood who a Samaritan was in that time and place, it would take you up out of your seat that this would be the hero of this story. What is he talking about? What Jesus is driving at here is that when you face with the question, who is my neighbor, the real question, who do I not have to love? He pulls out an example. And it's basically saying that the person you would least likely be inclined to love, the person you hate the most, the person you most consider unworthy of even the most minuscule portion of your attention, much less your love, that's your neighbor. And if that's your neighbor, then everybody on that spectrum between the people you'd most likely want to love and that person, they're all your neighbor. The translation is, when you're asked who do you have to love, the answer is... Everybody. Everybody. Jesus is telling us that there is not one person in this room, there is not one person in this building, there is not one person in this city, in this state, in this country, in this hemisphere, in this, on this planet. There is not one single person who we get to say, yeah, no, I'm not going to worry about loving that person. They're on their own. Mm-mm. Nobody. And that's a difficult ask. That's a very difficult ask. But here's the thing. Self-sacrificial love, giving of ourselves for the benefit of others, is the very core, the very essence of God's being. It is what we are called to model as we follow Christ, as we follow God. And it's a difficult thing. Look, there are people in this room right now who have very disparate political opinions. And we live in a culture where at this moment, having difficult opi- or different political opinions makes you the enemy. We are told by our culture, we are told by the rhetoric in this country, that if we disagree politically, not only do we just, okay, you think differently than I think. No, you're evil. You're the other. You're worth hating. I have to paint you in the worst possible light, because how dare you not think the same thing I think politically? I will never stand here, however many times they let me back up on this stage, I will never stand here and tell you this is the correct political opinion. Never. Because I don't believe in that. What I will tell you is that the Christian thing to do when we're talking about disparate political opinions is to remember who your neighbor is. We can disagree politically. We don't get to decide that because I disagree with this person or that person politically, I no longer have to treat them with respect, with kindness, with love, with mercy, with grace. I no longer have to treat them the way the the Samaritan came along and treated this person. Because it's God that decided that everybody was made in God's image. It's God that decided that we're all worthy of his life, of his incarnation, of of his death, and of his saving resurrection. It is God that decided that love gets spread incrementally. Scripture tells us that God's love falls as the sun shines and as the rain falls, right? On everybody, indiscriminately. God decided that. We don't get to decide that because you think something different than me politically or for any other disagreement that we have, that I get to not have a loving posture towards you. Now, that takes a whole lot of different forms. And I could go on for another 20 minutes about the different forms that that takes. Because sometimes love is embracing people and sometimes love is getting in between people and things that are trying to hurt them. Sometimes love takes all kinds of different forms. But what we don't get to do is take those differences and use them to exalt ourselves over other people. We don't get to decide differently than God and call ourselves followers of God. We don't get to do that. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not really about doing good for other people. That's great, I encourage everybody to to be do-gooders, that's a good thing. The parable of the Good Samaritan is trying to remind us of the radical nature of God's love for each and every person walking this planet. And how we are called not only to soak that love in ourselves, but to be overflowing with that love towards other people. God loves us overwhelmingly, extravagantly, each and every single one of us. And all God asks is that we allow that love to overflow to each other. Regardless of our differences of opinion, regardless of the differences in our politics, regardless of any differences we might have, We are to adopt a loving posture towards one another. We don't get to be the people that walk by people in need and say, no, I'm sorry, I've got an appointment. I can't help you right now. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. God loves us desperately, deeply. And we are to love one another. Amen? Amen.
0: Endings are a place where life is remained.